0: And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's The Rodcast, brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of The Rodcast, David Steele. Well, well, yes indeed, now we are talking. Thank you so much Larry Babb for that most excellent introduction. My name is David Steele and you are listening to an all new, all new episode of the Rodcast brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. Man, oh man, it has, to put it mildly, been one heck of a year and in so many ways and it 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 would be easy to go on about all the bad stuff Uh, we have all had to endure a lot and I'm sure that some have suffered more than I can comprehend of course we hope that all of our listeners have had good luck and good health throughout this national challenge and I'm happy to say that my immediate circle of friends loved ones have been incredibly lucky obviously i hope the same for all of you listening out there but i'm not here to bring anyone down just the opposite and the first order of business is to thank each and every one of you who have stepped up and joined our american hot rod foundation membership program It has truly been remarkable and inspiring to see these memberships coming in with great little notes and messages attached to them saying Things like, you know, so happy I can help support your work, keep up the great work, you guys, love following what you do, whatever I can do to help. I mean, every little, it just the cheering on uh, is just so fantastic, and it really does mean a lot, and it really does matter. Now, although we've been short on Rodcast episodes this year, we've certainly not had any issues with getting other things accomplished, and a lot of that has to do with you supporting members out there. Now, over the past few months, we've been able to get out and cover a lot of ground with our film interview series, and much of that can be attributed, again, to the fact that we have a budget for this. Believe me, hiring professional film editors, camera operators, sound engineers, it's serious business and it doesn't come for free. The entire process is costly, and the expense begins from the moment you decide to do it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but that said, and and I'm happy to get to say this to the folks who are supporting our work, we captured some incredible, absolutely incredible interviews this year, 10 so far just in the past few months. These interviews include Ed Pink. Steve Gibbs, Don Prieto, Bones Balog, Lewis Bloom, Tony Thacker, Al Kirschenbaum, Cole Coons, Harry Hibbler, and of course, today's guest, the incomparable Jay Leno. Again, we're, we're only able to set out and capture these in the way that we did because of our membership program. And we hope that each and every person who is involved will take this as a point of pride because this is your doing. I mean, yes, we are the ones doing the work, but we can't do it without your support. And, you know, we're in this thing of saving Hot Rod History together as a team, and frankly, I like it that way. Uh, So, let's keep on keeping on and see just how many of these great stories we can capture while we can. But now, on to today's guest it really is hard to know what to say when introducing Jay Leno unless you are a viewer of his truly great Jay Leno's garage series you might not fully understand how serious Jay is as a car guy in fact just saying he's a car guy doesn't really cover it because Jay is a high-level historian He's a real-deal hands-on guy who works right alongside his crew of guys, doing everything from the restoration to servicing on his many, many unique vehicles. And he's easily one of the most generous supporters of this hobby. And, you know, this is something we all love so much. And, you know, Jay is constantly giving his time and money to causes having to do with Automotive restoration schools like McPherson and other institutions where he has scholarship programs that he's behind. But he's also inspiring younger enthusiasts by supporting entry level car show classes for first time builders and restorers. And, you know, these are things that he'll tell you more about in this interview. (laughs) But, uh, you know, thanks to my former life in entertainment, I've been lucky enough to be around some pretty high-level car collectors, and I can't say there are many people like Jay in that community, and I mean specifically where kind of entertainment and or entertainers bleed over into the car world or car collecting. I certainly have never known someone who knew as much about each and every car in his collection as Jay does, and a lot of that just gets back to the fact that he works on his own stuff, and, and that fact can be directly tied back to his younger days as an auto mechanic at various shops, uh, auto detailer, you know, all of this around his his hometown outside of Boston. I mean, Jay is the real deal. Here, This is absolutely true. Here in L.A., he's kind of famous for either Fixing one of his early cars on the side of the road by himself or, more amazing, helping other motorists who are stranded for whatever reason. I mean, imagine having a flat and a guy rolls up alongside you to offer help and it's Jay Leno. (laughs) Um, I mean, I can't imagine that, but that's really who Jay is. And anyone who grew up working on cars knows that this is a unique quality that we all have in the hobby. And it's something that never leaves you, no matter what your level of success might become. And that's yet another thing that is so striking about Jay. He's really just another car guy. It's just that he achieved a level of the American dream that few of us can comprehend. And that's really the only difference. And for that reason alone, he should be applauded. You know, it's funny as I've said I've had the pleasure of visiting some really amazing car collections but I've never maybe with the exception of Bruce Myers collection I've never walked away from one of those experiences thinking well if I had the means that's exactly what I would do (laughs) That's exactly the type of collection I would have those are the cars I would want and in that condition and Fully serviced and ready to go all the time. A truly living collection. And that's what I thought and walked away with the first time I walked through Jay's garages. It's the kind of thing that can only be assembled by someone who grew up, you know, really grew up in it and considered cars to be, you know, his baseball. They were his football. They were his everything. That, that was his focus and passion and that was his main reason for blasting out of bed every day and you immediately recognize this in jay the moment you meet him he's he's just another one of us except that he hosted the tonight show for 25 years (laughs) Uh, but i digress and lastly i i want to say and this gets back to the support that so many of you have shown us this year Jay's always been this way in regards to the foundation. The times I've run into him at a car event where we've had a moment to chat, he's he always asks about the foundation. How's it going? What are you guys up to? What have you discovered recently? And it's simply because he cares about this stuff being preserved and cares that the history and the story of hot rodding continue on. And his way of helping out has been to consistently say to me let me know if I can do anything for you guys it's kind of like his standard closing anytime I have an exchange with him hey well let me know if I can do anything for you guys and it's an amazing offer and it's one you're never a hundred percent comfortable with taking someone up on because it's kind of like well is he just being nice you know does does he really mean this and but you know after the third or fourth time he gives you this you begin to feel like well maybe maybe i can take him up on this offer and anyway that's that's what we did and it was a simple email followed by a phone call and next thing i knew jay was pulling in my driveway and asking where we wanted him to be for the interview i mean really incredible stuff and it was an incredible day and an incredible experience with an equally incredible guy and and a conversation that I know you'll all enjoy. So, without any further ado, sit back, buckle up, welcome back to the RODcast, and enjoy our interview with car guy extraordinaire, Jay Leno. I was
1: born in uh, New, New York, April twenty-eighth, 1950, right in the middle of the century, just about dead in the middle of the century. And... Uh, it's interesting. I always thought it was a good time to grow up because old cars were just old cars. They didn't have that intrinsic value that they did now. You could buy cars for $50 or $100. You're still that Arrow. My dad would go, you could buy a new Cadillac. What are you, you buying an old car for the price of a new car? It made no sense to people why you pay more for some old car. Yeah. You could get a brand new car. And my dad was always that way. And <clears throat> what do you want to shift? You got the automatic; it shifts for you. What? What are you doing? And he never, he never got any of it,
0: huh. because
1: to him, uh, he was a street kid from the Bronx, and he was born in 1910. So to him, the drudgery of shifting was like oh, a car that shifts itself. That was that's the greatest thing ever. Yeah. You know, you could never understand why you buy a stick
0: shift. You know. So he wasn't a car guy necessarily.
1: Well. In that era, you had to be a car guy in the sense that you had to know how to fix a car. Mm -hmm. My dad thought uh, he might be a mechanic, my dad was a prize fighter, and they eventually became insurance salesmen, and he thought he should get into ignition, because that was the cleanest form of car repair, ignition. He didn't get that dirty doing ignition. So he knew cars, he knew engines, but out of necessity. My mother knew nothing about cars, but she knew if her Valiant didn't start, she would open the hood, take off the round thing, stick a screwdriver down the smaller round thing, then start it, then take the screwdriver out, then put the big round thing back. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, everybody yeah. had a rudimentary understanding of automobiles, but not necessarily a great love for it. Yeah. Hmm.
0: And you, it's really interesting, you said your dad was a prize fighter. Mm, yeah. Was he born in the country?
1: Oh, my dad was born in America. Yeah, he was born in New York. Uh, my parents, my grandparents were Italian. My mother's from Scotland. But my dad quit being a prize fighter because he said, even on his best day at work, he still got punched in the face. I mean, imagine going to work every day and getting punched in the face. Yeah. And he said, well, this is a terrible way to make a living. Maybe I'll be a mechanic, or maybe, you know, my grandfather had a fruit and vegetable cart. You know, I mean, just a classic Italian immigrant story, you know?
0: Yeah. Would you say that he had some kind of an interest in entertainment? Since no, had- no interest in entertainment. Because I Uh, think of prize fighting as maybe being a little, you know, you're on a stage. Well, once
1: I started getting into (laughs) show business, my dad let me know. You
0: know, I kind of wanted to go into the show business thing a little,
1: you know, that kind of thing. And he was a funny guy. That's why most insurance salesmen were Italians at the time, because they were gregarious and outgoing and that type of thing. So I think he might have had some interest in it, but no real interest in cars. In fact, one of my favorite stories is... When I was 16, my dad would buy what was in the showroom. We'd walk in. How much? It? If it had a radio, it had a radio. If it didn't have a radio, you couldn't get a radio. That was my dad. Whatever I had in the showroom. So we had had a '64 Galaxy. And in those days, my dad was doing pretty good. So he traded in every two years because after two years, rust would start to bubble on the fenders from being in Massachusetts with the salt, and he just mm-hmm. didn't like those problems. So we went down to Shawsheen Motors in Andover, Massachusetts. And my dad walks in and he says, where are the Galaxies? Oh, so, they just had Mustangs and Fairlanes on the floor. And my dad said, well, God, let's go to the Chevy dealer. And the salesman name was Tom Lawrence. He said, Miss Leno, you can order a car. I said, Dad, let's order a Galaxy. Well, we'll get the new Galaxy. It's a good-looking car. And the guy showed my dad a picture of the car. And I said, hey, Dad, can I order the engine? And my mother said, oh, let the boy pick the engine. What difference? You know, My father said, well, yeah, we've got to get a V8. Yeah, we'll get a, dad, I'll get a V8. Yeah, I'll get a V8, you know. So I pulled the salesman aside. I said, we want the 428 police interceptor package. <laughs> we want the muffler delete. We want the 390 rear end. We want the C6. I couldn't get my dad to get the four-speed, so we got the C6 automatic with bucket seats. You, know, you know, all the, the whole thing. And of course, my father's oblivious. He's like, where they they go? Yeah, I, I got maroons. Oh, maroons are nice color. Okay, Dad, just sign this. Said, well, Dad didn't look out. Oh, he just sign the thing. Fine. We ordered the car, you know. <laughs> About six weeks later, we get a car. Hey, your car's in. Hey, we drive up to get the car. My father goes, Bucket seats? I don't know. I don't like a bench i but bench Dad, that's the way they come. Now. It's a new thing, Miss Leno, bucket seats. And they showed my dad how if you pushed the bucket seat forward, you could roll up the seatbelt and stick it in the crevice and then put the seat back, and the seatbelt would never bother you again. Uh-huh. Didn't have to use it at all. It was out of the way. So that was the selling point. Okay. <laughs> Some of that look of goes, "Oh, it's a great car." Okay, okay, it's a good-looking car. You know, so my dad gets in. He puts the key in. He starts nah,
0: it. Go- There's a hole
1: in the goddamn muffler. There's a hole in the muffler. What kind of car is? It? Oh no, Miss Lena, you wanted the muffler delete pack. What? What do you mean muffler? That way out of muffler. You wanted the police interceptor. What do you mean p- p- police interceptor? With that, with the 428 engine. What, what are you talking about? Then my dad looks at the. Because <laughs> now he realizes. It. Yeah, you know, he's been had. I'm like, you hey, got the kid. Pick the end. What the hell did you pick? I said, Dad, I don't know. come for Christ's sake. Now my dad's all pissed off. Just get in the car. <laughs> so you get in the car. The dad starts it up. He gets, you know, and, he, and now he's pissed. So he puts it in gear and just out of force of habit of driving his old 352 Galaxy. He steps on the gas and the car goes, yeah, 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 yeah. It just, just fishtails. My father goes, it's a goddamn rocket ship. It's a like rocket ship. What the hell did you make me? And now he's just screaming at me and he's screaming at my mother, you know, And the cell, oh, Miss Leno, calm down. Let's get, the, let's get the hell out of here. So we go home. right? So my dad, just furious at this point, didn't speak to me for like two weeks. <laughs> then about a month later, I'm in my parents' bedroom looking for something and I see my dad got a ticket for going 110. He had taken a bunch of the salesmen out, you know, the young salesmen, they're all young guys. My dad was in his almost 50 at that point. But he had the fastest car in the office now. you know. So, hey, Miss Leno, can we go to lunch in your car? So my dad took him out, (laughs) he took him out. They did 110, the cops got him. But uh, hilarious, just very funny. So that was sort of indoctrination. Then I worked at Wilmington Ford. I worked at a couple of car dealerships. I did what was affectionately known as odometer, Recalibration. Oh, yes. A car would come in with a mistaken 84,000 miles. We would do the corrective mileage of 24,000. Yes. And that kind of stuff. <laughs> then I worked at Foreign Motors uh, of Boston. That's when we sold Rolls Royce, Bentley, Peugeot, uh, Mercedes Benz. I mean, it was foreign motors. You know, my dad mm-hmm. was, those far, your foreign jobs, you can't get parts from them. You know? That was my dad's thing. But I always, I just liked being around automobiles. Anything that rolled, exploded, and make noise, that was fun. You know, we grew up on a three acre, four acre plot in rural New England. It was normally an hour and a half drive to Boston. Once the, the throughway or the highway put in, it was 20 minutes to Boston. But when we first moved there, we were just out in the country, you know? So there were always abandoned cars and fields. I remember we, when we were 12, we found a renault 4cv you know those little things, looks like a mars yeah. minor and we kids got it running and we would drive around the backyard and you know and mom would sit out the kitchen window doing the dishes watching us drive of course now they would call child services and the child would be taken away and the car would be crashed but back then parents didn't see anything wrong with kids having cars i mean there was a gun club yeah. kids would bring rifles to school and put in a locker You know, Mm. you can can try that now. In fact, one time when we were like 13, some of the older kids went to Hills Hardware and bought a box of dynamite, half sticks, and they were driving around blowing up mailboxes. Oh my God. And the cops, (laughs) come on, kids, give us the dynamite. All right, get on home, you kids, you crazy kids. Of course, now you'd be a terrorist and thrown in jail, but uh, it was just a different time, so it was a looser time, you know? And so we, we drove, every day after school, we go back, we drive that 4CV around, and that's what we did. There were just abandoned cars everywhere. And you could buy, if you were a high school kid in 1966, you could buy a car for 50 bucks, 100 bucks. You know, a good 55 Chevy in nice shape was four and a quarter, maybe, mm. with a 283, and you put dual quads on it, and all that kind of stuff, you know? It was a time when, uh, I don't know what the modern equivalent would be now. Because the yeah. car, the hot rod back then was sort of the iPhone of the day. You went places in reality. You didn't go there virtually, you went there in reality. Yeah. And with a car, you could actually go uptown and you know, it was a kind of time where you'd hang around the McDonald's waiting for something cool to come in then you go home, and then the phone, would be, oh, you just missed it. A Corvette came, oh, a Corvette drove through the McDonald's. We missed it. I mean, you know, this was before the internet, before there, was, before there was, now you can just see whatever you want, whatever you wanted to, you know. But you'd wait for that issue of Hot Rod magazine. You'd read in the previous issue what the next issue would have and mm-hmm. what the new cars are gonna look like. I mean, all the popular culture, music, you know, Little GTO, Spring Little Cobra, Dead Man's Curve, all the songs are about driving, about cars. Even kids who knew nothing about cars pretended to because girls thought cars were cool. So it was just, it, it's so different than the way it is now. Yeah. I mean, there's still people interested in cars, but it's more, you know, I mean, now kids are either really interested or couldn't care less. I mean, I'm stunned when I meet young people who, how old are you, 24? Yeah, maybe I'll get my driver's license next year. Next year, I mean... When I was 15 and a half, I was at the DMV at 6 in the morning. Hey, hey, what oh, time yeah. do you open? You know, two more hours. Oh, two
0: more hours. You know, it was that kind of deal. So yeah.
1: it's fascinating to watch the change.
0: Yeah, it, it's it kind of speaks to how accessible it was when you were a kid. Right. You know, if the car broke, you could probably figure out how to... The fact that you were keeping a 4CV running, a bunch yeah. of kids, is really impressive. Well, the interesting thing is now, if you found... A car from
1: the 80s or the 90s, you probably couldn't get it running because you
0: don't have the sure the black. You know the computer might be bad. And how that's would right. you know? a you guy gave me and- a
1: 1915 Model T that had been leaning against his house in uh, Benedict Canyon. He'd had it 46 years. He just never did anything with it, and he said, do "You want this thing?" We dragged it back to my garage. Uh, of course, the gas tank was rotted, but we a can of gas with a fuel line hanging on a string, put some gas in the can, flood the carburetor, pulled the handle maybe five times, and it fired without a battery, without anything. When was this? This was <coughs> oh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Wow. Uh, because you had that magneto, you know, and it and it ran. It didn't run good, but it ran. Yeah. And it was like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. So. It's actually easier to get something running that's almost hundred years old than it is to get something running that's twenty-five years old.
0: For sure. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to. It's interesting to learn that you grew up in kind of rural right. America. I didn't know that. Well, I not think of you like uh, as a city boy. Well, for New some England. Reason. Yeah, I think because I think Boston and. Yeah, you know.
1: but we were thirty-five miles outside Boston. Yeah. And thirty-five miles with no car. And two-lane roads. Yeah, it took you an hour and twenty minutes. You know, you yep. had every stop. So end over North End over Boxford Chelmsford. You know, you did. Every the T didn't make it, out, did it out to uh, where but you were But I mean, it was a fun place to grow up, and just the, the the accessibility of cars and and you know, it's interesting. You were really a young man then. When you were, you know, I have a book called Projects for Boys, 1927. And one of them is how to make an electric garage door opener for your dad. And that a 12-year-old kid could make, assumed would be able to make this. Mm -hmm. People just assumed, well, you're 12, you should be able, you want to handle tools and make things. And the projects in this book would be like something for an adult now. I, I mean, I remember kids 12, 13, you know, go hunting out behind the house, rabbits and all that kind of stuff, and shoot a rabbit, skin it, and they would eat it, you know, and it's like, oh, okay. Nowadays, I'm, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know guys 35 still living at home, you know, <laughs> and the people I meet, like one day I'm going to Coldwater Canyon, and I see a 7 Series BMW with a flat tire. I stop, you okay? Yeah, flat tire. You got a spare? Guy goes, yeah, but there's no way to get the wheel off. I said, well, yeah, there's yeah, that's okay. And now, if that has just a flat cover uh, over the lug nuts, you know, it just it's got a little O-ring on it and it snaps over. And there's a tool. I said, you know, if you look in your owner's manual, I think there's a tool to get that off. He goes, really? I said, yeah, give me your. Own. So you open his owner's manual, and of course, it's still sealed in plastic. It's yeah. never been opened, yeah. and you see the aluminum piece in there. So I said, okay, I take this. <clears throat> you see that little lip, just so go, what? And you see the four lug, and goes, oh, whoa! I go, yeah, you take those off. Hey, open this, we, you got a, a jack. Oh, okay. And we get the jack out, we change it. To, and this guy is amazed, and of course this girl thinks I'm just, oh, I'm, I'm the most manly man ever, you know. And it just astounded me. This guy had this 7 Series BMW, and had no idea how to change a tire or take the wheel off. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, when I was a kid, you always saw guys changing tires. Now people sit there with the cell phone. An hour, oh, it's an hour for the, the AAA guy to get here. We'll just change the tire, you know. Um,
0: so it's... It's a yeah, very different time. I actually know yeah. a guy that had called AAA when he walked out to his garage in the morning and his car had a flat tire in his garage <laughs> and had AAA come to his house. And I thought, my God, man, you've got tools. It's in, yeah. your, it's in your garage.
1: Yeah, that's the <laughs> norm. Well, you know what's
0: interesting? Now I find... Kids either know an
1: exceptional amount, I mean, almost idiot savant, or nothing. Hmm. In, in my day, you just, everybody had to know a little something just to survive, how to change tires. But now I meet kids, either they're just car crazy and know everything, or they know absolutely nothing. Hmm. There's no sort of middle ground anymore, which I find interesting. I don't Why
0: know. do you think that is?
1: Well, you know, cars have become more like appliances or refrigerators. You know, I had a friend of mine who collected Maytag washing machine motors. Don't ask me why. But the Maytag washing machine from about 1903 to about, I don't know, early teens, beautiful thing. A lot of copper, a lot of nickel. When you started it up, you saw the articulated arm and you saw the thing moving the agitator. It was like opening the back of a watch. It's just a pretty thing mm-hmm. to watch. And then somebody realized you don't have to make it that precision anymore. Just come up with a black engine, spray it all black, and put a white box on it. And, and nobody collected them anymore because there was nothing mechanical about it. It was just a washing machine. Yeah. You know, I don't know anybody that collects washing machines, but I know guys that look for these early May tags <coughs> that have all the kind of. You see the thing in the. They're know, works the, of art. Yeah, they are yeah. works of art. Yeah, so precision was the death of the craftsman. You know, this country, like all other countries, <clears throat> prior to the Industrial Revolution, during, used to have craftsmen. They would make a gun, you know, hone it, sand, file it, blah, 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 blah. maybe make one gun a week or one gun a month, but it was a precision made instrument. When precision engineering came along, you had guys like. Uh, Henry Leland, who started Lincoln, uh, he started working at firearms. He was the first guy to go down to one ten-thousandth of an inch. And when precision engineering came along, it was the death of the craftsman because you didn't need them anymore because parts were so well made. You know, I always ask people, what has more precision parts, a Rolls-Royce or Model T? And most people go, oh, Rolls-Royce. And you go, not really, because they built like one or two Rolls-Royces a week. And if a part didn't fit, a craftsman would take it apart, do this, plane it, run it, file it, whatever, put it back, no, do this, and, until it fit perfectly. Henry Ford had precision because he was turning out in 100 Model T's an hour, and every part had to fit exactly, or the whole thing stopped. So, a Ford Model T has way more precision-fit parts than a Rolls-Royce, as ridiculous as, 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 as that sounds. Yeah. And consequently, the idea of paying a craftsman a good deal of money to make you a perfect specimen when precision engineering could make it for you at a tenth of the price there was no need for that guy anymore so there's no need for that skill Mm. you know and that's where a lot of craftsmen went I mean when I was a kid every man was a carpenter at least in our neighborhood I mean we didn't grow up in a wealthy area we grew up in a middle-class area but every guy had a project, every guy's dad had a project in the basement. You know, now you just watch Netflix, you know, it's a little bit different. But, but they did, I mean, yeah. I just remember, I don't know, and you know, if your dad didn't know how to use a screwdriver, chances are you don't either. Yeah. I mean, I never knew anybody's dad who didn't have a toolbox. In fact, the mom sometimes had a toolbox. I don't know anybody, hardly anybody, other than car guys, especially in show business. They take pride, and somebody told me they bought a car and said it's front-wheel drive. Well, I don't know. <laughs> no, you know, front-wheel. What, what do you mean? I mean, I drive it. No, you know, front-wheel, the front-wheel's turn. Oh, they're all turned. No, no. The engine, <laughs> I realized, it was just, I'm talking to a guy in show business. It's just not what he does, you know. Hmm. And it, you just kind of go, okay, because, you know, there's no need for it anymore. Cars don't really break anymore, you know. That's why cars don't have spare tires anymore. You don't. Nobody really. You still get flats, but not with the frequency you used to. So they did away with it. You know, you know I get why kids aren't interested in modern cars because they're pretty boring. They're all either white, black, or matte gray. Uh, they all have some sort of crossover SUV component. So the sense of style, just for style's sake, is not really there anymore. It's just. A People mover or a thing to move suitcases from one location to another and I have to admit I'm not really interested in them You know someone say to me, hey, what's the best SUV to buy? I go, I don't know. What do you like? Just hmm. get whatever you like They're all the same. They run fine. They don't really break you don't bond with modern automobiles the way you did, you know when I was a kid there was a great prize, your car broke and you opened it up and you could uh, you know, oh, distributor cap came off. Okay, let's put those two clips on. Oh, oh great sense of pride that you, oh, I, I got this thing home. I mean, to me, that's half the fun of driving holes. I have the kind of cars people are not amazed that I got there quickly. They're amazed I got there at all. <laughs> how'd, you even get, how'd you get there in that thing as well? It broke and I fixed it along the way. I mean, I, I, I like that. You either like the mechanicalness of it or you don't.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the relationship with mechanical stuff is a very... It's a very specific thing, I think, yeah.
1: Yeah, and it's the ability also, when you're in a business like I'm in, when you're in show business, some people like you, some people think you suck, and they're both correct, because if they don't think you're funny, well, they don't like you, and this guy thinks you're hilarious, okay. But they're both correct, but if something's broken and you fix it, well, no one can say that's not right. See that engine that wasn't running yesterday? Watch this. It's running now. And no one can say it's not running.
0: Yeah. And
1: so there's a great sense of that, of accomplishment, you know. You got something that wasn't working to go black and white. Didn't run before. Now it runs. It's mm-hmm. closed. You're not arguing. Yeah, but it's not that funny. You You know what I'm saying? You, yeah, there's no opinion. Yeah, yeah, there's no opinion. It's just fact.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, getting back to your... Childhood, I'm wondering, since you kind of grew up around what sounds like some agriculture Mm -hmm. and some middle-class blue-collar life, which obviously is a great... Man, if you're going to become a car guy, what a great place to come from, those ingredients. Um, Were there older guys around that had cars, had interesting cars that that you kind of paid attention to or maybe piled around with or learned from?
1: When you grew up in a small town... Anything with less than four doors might as well be a Ferrari. You know, the fun thing about growing up in a small town is cars take on mythic proportions, you know. A friend of mine, Mark, his dad bought a 63 Impala 283. I did even know had a four-barrel, a Super Sport. And it was a pillarless coupe, you know, no post in the middle, with a two-speed automatic. Well, that might as well have been a Ferrari. That was like the fastest thing we'd ever been in because it was a cool-looking car. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's just funny. And when you go up in a small town, there's always the guy. We're from Andover. The guy from North Andover has got a '56 Chevy uh-huh. with a blown whatever in it. And when he rumbled through, oh, that, that was an event. It was like, oh my God, it was like a big deal. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so innocent now, but it's a time. It was huge. It seemed like the coolest thing in the world. Uh, you know, you didn't see Lamborghinis or Porsches or anything like that when you go up in a small town in New England. And maybe maybe once in a great while you saw
0: something go by on the highway,
1: but that was about
0: it. And were you interested enough in cars as a kid to be noticing, like keeping track of, ooh, there's a, like the Supersport Impala or whatever?
1: Oh, that's all you or- noticed. I remember when I was nine, I was on my bicycle riding in Balladvale. That was the... Town within the town of Andover, that was kind of the quote lower class area near the tracks. I went up a hill, I got to the top of the hill just as a guy was pushing out a 120 Jag 1951 with spats. Wow. I looked at that thing, you know. And he said, You want to, you want to come sit in this car? I said, Sure, you know. and I went over, and this is, of course, the days before old before old men were all men were pedophiles. You know, he let me sit in the car, and I said, oh, and he was an old guy, you know? And I always remember that jack. In fact, the first car I got when I made some money was an XK120, just like that one, because it had made such an impression on me. And I was telling this story once on The Tonight Show, and this guy called me and said, hey Jay, remember that guy who, who you uh, sat in his jack? His name was Mulligan. I go, that's right, his name was Mulligan. He goes, you know, he still has that car. He said he does. He must be dead now. He must be hundred. He goes, no, no, he's only sixty-two. <laughs> I realized I was nine. He was like twenty-two. But I, th- <laughs> I thought he was,
0: I thought he was a really old man. <laughs> I
1: told him, I said, really, he's like twenty-something years older than me. He, he said, yeah. I said, oh, okay. So next time I went back to Andover, I and went back to, the, and the car is in the same barn as it was. When I was nine years old in 1959, you know, what, 40 years later, it was like, oh my God. And there the car was, wow. pretty much looked the same, a bit neglected. And he was a car guy. He had weird stuff, Hillman minxes and, mm. you know, all kinds of odd things like that. You know, a lot of half-finished projects and a real New England guy lived in a house, cut his own firewood every week. He cut a cord of wood with an ax, you know. Uh, Hilarious. That'll keep you in shape. Oh yeah, no, you kept (laughs) in shape. But so when you grow up in a small town, there's always those kind of guys around, you know? Yeah. So you work.
0: It wasn't just mechanical things. It was cars,
1: cars, motorcycles, go-karts, steam engines, anything mechanical. Mm -hmm. I I, I liked because I could follow the, the progress. Being dyslexic, you get all screwed up reading stuff. But watching something work in this gear, and okay, it was hard to screw that up, you know. So mm. that was interesting. That was interesting to me.
0: It's funny that you mentioned that because I, my next question was, did you subscribe to magazines when you were a kid, and what did you read? Um, funny, I didn't
1: subscribe to magazines. I always went and bought them because when I when you, I subscribed once, and the cover would always be torn, and that stupid sticker would be across. <laughs> the engine or the part of the thing. And I was one of those, you know, I would say, I still have every magazine I had when I was 14. All those issues of car and driver, I'd neatly put them in a pile, you know, one December, January, February, March. You know, I had them all stacked. So no, I, I didn't subscribe specifically for that reason because they would always come all hmm. gnarled up and everything by the time I got them. You wanted them pristine. Oh yeah, yeah. To me, it was almost my history, you know. It's funny because when you get to be this age, like I finally found a 6.3 Mercedes. Now when I was a kid I worked at Foreign Motors and Mercedes Benz at that time took the engine out of the 600, the big limousine, the 6.3. A guy named Eric Waxenberger put it for fun in a small 280 SE sedan where a six cylinder had been to see what it would be like. He did it without the permission of Mercedes Benz, and he would roar past his boss's office every day in this thing. And finally his boss went, what is this? And he took his boss for a ride and he said, oh my God, we've got to build this car. So they built the 6.3, which was the fastest four-door sedan you could buy, with the exception of maybe if you bought a Hemi police car or something like that, Mm. but for the most part that was it. And it was $14,000 when a Cadillac was $6,000. So when I worked at the Mercedes dealer, I had to do new car prep, and the smell of the leather and the driver, and I always wanted one of those. And to this day, it's still one of my favorite Mercedes to drive. But I don't know whether it's because it was a superior car or whether it was that unattainable thing when I was a kid. I, I, I'd never be able to. How could I ever get one of these things making $1.25 an hour? You mm. know.
0: So driving it still makes me smile, and I still get a kick at it. And so are you saying that you're not sure if it's for nostalgic reasons or is the car actually that great? Is that what you're saying? Yeah,
1: I'm try- I, I still don't... Th- I think the car is great. To other people, I go, well, it's just kind of hard, doesn't it? I go, well, yeah, that's it. It kind of gives <laughs> you yeah. a kick, you see. I go, oh, I don't like that. You don't like that? Yeah. yeah, yeah, so I don't know. I think it is. It's probably 50-50. A, it is a great car, and A, the nostalgia of it is yeah, it's a big a serious part car, man. Yeah, a yeah, wonderful
0: car. Those are really... Yeah, well, that's my very first car. I bought that when I was 17, the black Chevelle.
1: Wow, that's, and, a, that's a late model car. My very first car was a 34 Ford, so that's like a new car.
0: Ah, well it was 16 years old when I bought it in high school. Wow, and, uh, and what'd you pay for it? 2,200 bucks. Okay, there you go. Um, and it was 2,200 bucks because the original owner, Steve Pinnock, who had bought it new, when he was 17, his mother co-signed for it, he took it to the local body shop and said, Yeah, it's looking tatty, make it look nice again. And apparently they didn't have much conversation beyond that. And so they made it look new and he couldn't pay the bill. Wow. And so he gave it to them. And I went to high school with the son of the body shop owner who told me about the car, and he goes, You know what? That's a really nice car. If you got twenty two hundred bucks to pay the bill, you can have the car. And so my dad and I went in on it together.
1: And did you ever go visit the guy who was the original owner?
0: I absolutely did. And it was a little hairy at first, because he wasn't quite sure that he, you know, he was like, I like that you got my car, but those bastards and he was mad at the body shop. and right, he, right, So, you had know, all this kind of energy going on about that. And he was very adamant that I correct the color on the wheels. He said they painted the wheels the wrong color. And he goes, and I should know I bought the thing new which I didn't know that until he told me that. And then he takes me to his house and he shows me his photo album of the car in like New Mexico and on all these vacations. And he goes, how old are you? And I said, 17. And he loved that. He goes, that's how old I was. And then he gets out the window sticker and then we became friends.
1: Yeah, that's fun.
0: And um, that was a small town in Southern Indiana. And apparently after I put dual exhaust on it with turbo mufflers, that wasn't good. He was behind me at a light. I didn't know it. I get home and my mom says that Steve Pinnock guy called and he's really upset because the car's too loud. Oh, that's funny. And I'd already owned it for like five years, you know. But I mean, that car is from back east and it's rusty and, right. You know, to a muscle car guy, I've had eight different engines in it. Right. I've really screwed it up, by, you know, uh, guys who are into those things, number matching and all that. But to me, it's worth a million bucks. Right. And I think about that too, like. Is that car everything I think it is? And it, at the end of the day, I guess it doesn't matter. It's the car I drove to prom, right. and, you know.
1: But. Like that Mustang there. You know where the horse is facing that direction? Oh, I've heard this, but I, I've long, I forgot. Well, the horse was originally <laughs> facing the other way. Okay. And Leia Coca said, no, no, go west, young man. I want that Mustang facing west. That's where the young people are, that's where the new ideas are coming from, blah, blah, So they turned it around.
0: Before production,
1: they turned it around? That's what I heard, yeah. Interesting. The other thing I heard was a guy named Chrysides, something like, uh, interesting name. This guy was a soldier in Hungary. And he was going to the Olympics in the Equestrian Corps. And he was going to be an Olympic Equestrian. Then World War II started. So the Olympics were canceled, and he got drafted into the Army. And he was put in the cavalry Corps. Uh, He gets in the Cavalry Corps. His commanding officer was killed in the first battle. He was made head of the Cavalry Corps. He led the last charge in modern warfare of cavalry against tanks. Hmm. Got wiped out. He survived. He came to America, and that Mustang is an homage to the, car, to the horse that he rode in the last cavalry charge of World War II. The reason you don't know the story is he was on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> he was fighting against us, huh. and we <laughs> blew him out of the water. And then he came here, he went to, uh, to, he went to Detroit to become a designer, and he did the first design study of the horse. It wow. became the Mustang. That's one of those stories that's apocryphal. I've heard people say, yes, it's true. Other people go, I never heard that. So I don't know. But if you, if you look it up, there's, there's some
0: history to it. That's fascinating. Were you ever able to speak to Iacocca about that?
1: No, no. I knew Iacocca, but I, I didn't get a chance to ask him about that. Uh, foreign Motors. Foreign that, Motors? Did that sound funny? Because at the time, that <laughs> seemed like a very normal name. Yeah, but it sounds politically incorrect today. Yeah, you, know, you can't say foreign anymore. Because no. <laughs> there, there is no... No foreign, really. Yeah, yeah, everything is, yeah. I mean, back in the day, package used to be made with parts made as far away as Indiana.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. So, yeah. the idea of something coming from overseas. Hmm. But how old were you when you started working there?
1: Uh, probably, oh, eighteen and a half, nineteen. 18 and a half, 19, at Foreign Motors. I worked at uh, Wilmington Ford when I was 16.
0: And what was your job there at the Ford? I hubcaps? was lot
1: boy. In fact, my job, it was one of those acres of car places where they just had, so my job, every morning I would go out with hubcaps, put all the hubcaps on the cars in the front row, you know, so people driving by, and then at night i had have to take them all off because the kids would steal them. Hmm. So one night I'm coming back, it's like five o'clock, I got, I'm got a thing of hubcaps, and I come around the corner, and the used car manager's on there, he bangs into me, the hug caps go all over the place. He goes, you can't treat us, you're fired. I said, you bumped them you're fired, get out of here. I was so ashamed that I got fired, I didn't tell my parents. I pretended to go to work for the next two weeks. Hmm. But I would have let it, Henry Ford, I would have let it to everybody on the board of directors, whatever I could, and my dad's got a Galaxy, I'm saving for a Mustang, my mom's got a Falcon. I love working at Ford, and I got fired unfairly, bip, bip, bip. So Ben Restucho owned the dealership and after two weeks called me and he goes, I don't know who you know in Detroit, but uh, I got a letter from Henry Ford. If you want your job back, come on back again. So oh, I got my job back. So that made me kind of a Ford guy. I went, oh, that's pretty good. So that's my, fantastic. My parents never knew that I got fired. I, I was like a 50-year-old man, you know, that gets laid off. I, went, I told my mom, go to work, mom and dad. And then I, oh, I go somewhere. Go to a bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go to a bar. Yeah. Just, you know, go somewhere and hang out and it's... And then I got my job back, so that was pretty good. That is...
0: Oh, I was thrilled with that's, that. that's quite a bit of insight into... I was thrilled with that. That's really cool. That. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. And so your next job is, is at Foreign Car... Uh, and then
1: the, I w- that, what it was was I,
0: uh, I was going
1: to Emerson College, which is right down the street from hmm. Foreign Motors, which is on Commonwealth Avenue. And, you know, when you're a kid, you don't even think. I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll get an apartment here and I'll work there, and I'll go to school in Boston. That's perfect. So I went into the place, and I said, uh, I'm oh, yeah, we're not hiring anybody. Oh, but I'm, I, I can work. I worked at a Ford deal. No, no, sorry, I don't need anybody. Okay. So then the next week, I just went to work there. I got there in the morning, and i start washing cars, you know, people. So finally, after a week of this, the head boss sees me, he goes, what's that kid doing here? I goes, oh, he's pretty good. He's been washing cars. Didn't you hire him? He goes, I didn't hire him. He goes, What's he doing here? And so he said, I, I said, I always wanted to work here. I go, how's he doing? He's doing okay. All right, now all right, you can work here. So then I worked there for the next three years. Yeah, so.
0: hmm. And I got to drive Rolls Royces and Mercedes, and oh, it was a fabulous job. And what years were those that you were there working? Oh,
1: probably '69 through '72.
0: My college years. Yeah. yeah. There's some good stuff coming through there at that time. I would think yeah, interesting was, cars. Yeah, it was great. I, enjoyed, I I loved it. I loved it. And and at a dealership like that, I would think there would also be very interesting trade-ins coming in. We took
1: a gullwing Mercedes in. We gave the guy fifty-five hundred bucks for it. Mm. My boss sold it to. Me. He said it for seventy-five hundred and thought, well, that's it. He will never make that much money on a used car ever again. It was just unbelievable. He was like, oh my God, it was unbelievable. Let alone a gold wing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we took a <laughs> we took a 275, it was that GTC Ferrari. We gave that guy like 5,500 bucks and oh sold God. that for 6,500. You know, so then we realized, boy, there's more money in these used cars. My boss, Selden Loring, was his name. He's since passed away, but he used to scour French magazines looking for Bugattis. And he'd buy them in any condition for twelve hundred bucks, two thousand dollars, and then sell them for five thousand or six thousand dollars. So, you could do that back then.
0: Yeah, was he maybe kind of known for that in a way? I feel like he was mentioned in that the Bugatti Hunter book. Yeah, I think he was mentioned. He, he is in the that. Bugatti Hunter. Yeah. yeah, so is the guy, from Vermont.
1: Yeah, all those guys. A lot of them. Are, well, I'm of them are set have passed on since, but yeah, yeah, the Bugatti Hunter book, yeah, I think he's in there.
0: Yeah. Um, I have two questions about your time at that dealership. Uh, I heard a story once that had to do with a radio and a new Mercedes and Robert Klein.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, that was, uh, I wanted to be a comedian and Robert Klein had a summer show called Comedy Tonight and I was a huge fan. Oh, my God, and then he came in the dealership and he bought a 250 Mercedes, and I installed the radio for him. Yeah, Rob and I, whenever we see him, we always talk about that.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, that's funny, yeah. That's really cool. And then another story I'd heard was something about, you had a lot of cash in a, maybe a Rolls-Royce or something. No, what it was, was we sold. Transporting the car, driving it, transporting
1: it. We sold a, uh, showed you how times have changed. In 1970, the most expensive rolls you could buy was a Corniche convertible, $29,500. It was crazy. So we didn't transport cars, we drove them. And when Rolls-Royces came into the country, they would come into the port of New Jersey, and then we would pick them up at the port and drive them up to Boston. Uh, So I delivered this Corniche convertible guy gave me $34,500 in cash. I then had it in a paper bag. I went to the port of New Jersey. I picked up a Rolls-Royce to drive back to Boston. I thought, well, I'll go do a show at the Improv, you know. So I drive into Hell's Kitchen, 20 years old, with long hair and a Rolls-Royce, and $34,500 <laughs> in a paper bag. I just parked it on the street like an idiot. So I go on the improv and I said, Bud, can I go on? So Bud goes, kid in a rolls rice. like 20, you know? He goes, yeah, I think my dad's rich or something. you know. He goes, yeah, you can go on. So I got on, I put the, the $34,500 on the piano in a bag. And I do my set and I got my little tape recorder. I'm taping my set, you know, and killing! Ah, getting laughs left and right. Ah, I'm so all excited, I take my coat. Ah. So I'm driving back to uh, Boston I get to the first Connecticut toll booth, I'm listening to my set over and over again, oh and how funny it was, you know, that's good, that worked, that worked. Let me pay the toll, and then I go, I don't have the thirty-four thousand five hundred dollars. Then I realize I left it on the piano with the improv. So I'm already an hour outside the city. So now I have to turn around, and drive an hour back to the city. I pull up the improv, it's like one fifteen, one thirty in the morning. I look in, there's a girl singing on stage and Couple of drunks, you But my bag is still on the, you know. So, so I ran and I said, "Oh, I forgot my lunch. Excuse me. I'm oh, sorry, miss." And looked in the bag. <laughs> looked like the money was there. Took out. Okay. So, but I would just be getting out of prison now.
0: Oh, at, at
1: best. Yeah. Exactly. Or
0: or no one would have ever heard from you again. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, you bring you bring up an interesting thing that I wanted. I was just curious to know when you kind of hit this realization that you knew what you wanted to do. Because when I hear about a guy going from one car dealership to another, I'm thinking, well, that guy's going to have a career in the automobile business. No, I knew, I knew I'd never be able to ha- afford any of these cars by working there. Oh, so that was a factor. You wanted the cars. It wasn't just that you wanted to be around them. You wanted to have them well. Well, you know well. what's weird? I, it's weird when you grow up I remember working with guys at the car dealership,
1: and there was a guy named Tony, began with an S, and he was an interior decorator, pretty flamboyant guy, had a lot of cars. And once a week, three or four of us in the new car, you know, detail department, go out to his garage, and he would pay us to clean his cars. I remember saying to the three other guys, one of the guys going, man, it's a great job. Maybe we do this all the time, just clean rich people's cars. And I said, Nah, no, I'd rather be the rich person and have the cars. And they went, well, it's not going to happen. I said, what could happen? And they just looked at me like I was crazy. Like, I remember saying, what part of America did you grow up in? It could happen. I mean, to not even dream. Mm-hmm. I understand if you're 50 and it never happened. But oh, I used to dream about maybe I'd be this guy. And I thought, are these guys' lives really? Your life is over at, what are you guys, 21, 20? 20, or a couple of years older than me, 22? And really, you don't even have the dream of maybe starting your own detail business and yeah, one day yeah. have, no, they were just content to just wash them and polish them and that was as far as they would ever go. I, I, I always remember that lesson in life, like, really? Geez, I, I mean, I never thought I'd achieve this much success. But I thought I would get some, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, I just remember that, that that idea that you'll never really rise above whatever station you are. You know, I remember when I was a, uh, a neighbor lady said to me, you can't be a comedian unless your father was a comedian. That's the way it works in Hollywood. You know, your father had to have been a comedian before you can be a comedian. Hmm. I thought, well, what's that? you know that old New England, you know, that sort of shaker, uh, you're born, life is horrible, then you die. You know, just a, just that
0: Ethan Frome, Silas Monner, oh, horrible existence. You know. Oh my God. <laughs> well, I grew up in Buffalo, so there that oh, that runs that runs okay. through Buffalo as well. Yeah.
1: You know, I kind of like Buffalo. A lot of great cars. Pierce, Pierce Arrow. Pierce Arrow. Yeah. I got a Pierce Arrow sixty-six, which to this day is still the biggest engine ever. Cast aluminum body, three valve per cylinder motor, uh, brilliant, uh, way better than a Rolls Royce, way superior. Yeah, uh, I mean Buffalo had some wonderful uh, manufacturing. It was a, you know at the turn of the century, I think there were more millionaires per capita in Buffalo than just about anywhere else in America. Almost that's what
0: I was always told. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And those what is it? It's Delaware Avenue and Elmwood Avenue going north out of the city. It's like Mansion Row. Right, and right. It's all, in fact, it's like Bethlehem Steel CEO. That was his house, and then you know you
1: know who was editor of the Buffalo newspaper. Mark Twain.
0: Now, how would I not know that? Born in
1: Buffalo. Well, no, he wasn't. Wrong well, he, well, he wasn't born in Buffalo, but Mark Twain married a girl from Buffalo, okay. and he was a, obviously a great humorist and a wonderful writer. Terrible, terrible businessman. Uh-huh. Just went through money. We just, you know, just yeah. Uh, so he became editor of the editor of the Buffalo newspaper, and he wrote columns and oh yeah, yeah, oh. you know the anchor bar and you know. Uh, Dickey's Donuts, and you, you know, uh, Tonawanda. Uh,
0: That's where my father worked
1: for yeah, at the plant. 20 some odd years. Yeah. And then there was a theater in the round in Tonawanda. I played that dozens of times. I did it with Perry Como, I did it with Liberace, I did it with Shanana.
0: I saw Shanana when I was a kid.
1: Yeah, I was the opening what? act. Oh come on. I
0: was. I was. That was I was the guy that made no impression on you at all. <laughs> oh, come on. I went with my mom. It had to be 77 or so. That was me. Fantastic. My first concert. Yeah, there you Ever. go. Ever. Yeah. I'll be damned. With That's Bowser,
1: crazy. remember the Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Do-do-do-do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the when the stage
1: Yeah. The yeah. stage revolved. Yeah.
0: Oh my god. That's hilarious yeah, yeah that's it, it was a great you know my dad was a car guy and a restorer and, and all that and i love hearing you say with you know some kind of an you know it, like it had as an impression on you in your mind that buffalo is a serious town that come, comes to manufacturing of pretty high level like senior cars and well
1: senior i mean a lot of buffalo a lot of manufacturing came out of buffalo because a Industry industry produces heat. And when you produce heat, it's just wasted unless you live in Buffalo. Mm. Then it gives the workers an incentive someplace to go because it's warm. It's probably warmer than their house. Mm. So there's heat where you work, which was a huge it seems, you know, like nothing now, but yeah. Back in the day, you know, especially the winters in Buffalo. But yeah, there's all kinds of history.
0: Um, so as you are kind of entering into the 70s and your career is ramping up. Um, I, I'm always interested to know this from, from people in entertainment uh, who are as obsessed as you are, as passionate as you are about cars. Was it ever a liability for you? Like psychologically, was it a, a distraction? Like you've got these sets that you're writing, but you also have this Hemings and there's this car in it and you don't know if you're gonna get this guy on well, the phone in time, Well, but you've I, got a joke you're writing.
1: I, I, I'm one of those people, what's the old saying, the heart is healthiest when the hands and the head work together. And during mm. the day i work with my hands, and then at night I'd work on material. And I didn't become obsessive like other people in the sense of all day they're just um, going on, uh, they're drinking, they're doing, I had stuff to do when you're fixing something, I just put that other part of it away, and I had another life at night as a comedian. And I found it was quite relaxing, actually. It, it just k- keeps your mind off it. You know, I, I mean, Chauvin's like champagne. If you do it 24 hours a day, you're an alcoholic. If you do it when you enjoy it, then it's fun. You know, you don't mm. take it too seriously. Then I go back to the garage and I work on something, and I found it, it just provided a nice balance.
0: Hmm. So you're able to partition and, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um I um it's funny. I talked to Jeff Beck about this and when I asked him that question, he looked at me like I was crazy and he said, "It's been the biggest problem in my life." He Look. says he says I I start thinking I need a chop 34 coupe and I can't play guitar anymore. Well, yeah, well. And and he he said it just spins me out in my mind. And uh, yeah, I like him. He's a nice guy. Jeff. He is. Yeah, he's a good dude. Um so I'm also interested in that, you've already answered one of my questions, because okay. what was the first car you bought when you- First car I bought was a kind of 34 splurge.
1: Ford pickup truck, which uh, we saw at a gas station, North Reading, for $350 when I was 14 and a half. And it didn't run, and my dad said, you got two years to get it running, you know, so we got it running and that was fun. I enjoyed that. Flathead V8? Yeah, a flathead V8, nothing fancy, just an old pickup truck, but it was a 34 Ford. In fact, even the origin of pickup truck, you know where that comes from? Hmm. When you could buy, guys would buy a Model T body, and you could put a rear seat, you could put a trunk, or you could put a box, and inevitably you ordered the box, so you went down to the station to pick up your trunk or to pick up your box. So the expression "pickup truck" this is one of those things you sort of hear. That's where it came from. Oh, I pick, you know, you pick it up at the railroad, so it was a pickup truck. You picked up the thing, and you made your truck out of your Model T chassis. You know.
0: Wow! See, every day I learn a little more. Yeah, I love that. Um, do you do some work with McPherson College?
1: I have some scholarships I set up with them. We, I think we set up one of the first way. God, it must be close to thirty years ago. I set up the Fred Dews, Fred and Augie Duesenberg Scholarship, and just for kids. You know, this is the only country in the world where to be mechanic you just hang up a sign that says mechanic. Hmm. You go to Germany, you can't just say you're mechanic. You have to show you a degree from yeah, the mechanic of the you know whatever the school is. you know? Yeah. Uh, my favorite sign was when I saw when I first came here for a shop in Burbank, it says, We specialize in all makes of cars. So they specialize in everything. Everything! They specialize in everything. And that was always my favorite thing. So, uh, so with McPherson, you know, when most kids tell their parents they want to be a mechanic, <laughs> the tears start and where did we go wrong and what happened to our son. But you go to McPherson, and you get a four-year degree, an actual degree, and it features electronics and ignition and cylinder head design, paint and buy, whatever you want, because it's an actual four-year college with math and English and with emphasis on restoration and, you know, uh, antique uh, formula for paints and how you get a patina and a car. You know, just all of that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these kids, they get internships to... Mercedes-Benz Classic centered Ferrari, Jaguar, and they make 100 bucks an hour, 115 bucks an hour of store and stuff. So your parents aren't ashamed anymore to say their son's a mechanic, you know?
0: Yeah. I
1: mean, I have a friend of mine that runs a transmission shop. He makes hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars a year because he's good at his job, and nobody else can do it.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's one of the great, it's like a strangely kept secret about, So many blue collar jobs, you know. Well, the idea that working with your hands
1: is somehow lesser. Yeah. I, I don't know why that is. I mean, to have a, you know, a man's hands used to be something artists would draw, it used to be a trait your father had, or something, you know, just that sort of that calloused hand with, you know, I just remember that as a kid. Men had real hands, you know. Yeah. Most guys, hands look like a puppy's paw now. It's got the four little pads, and they never touch anything, and they're all pink, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm curious to know what your thoughts and feelings are about the future of kind of the car hobby in general, shows, events, restoration. Oh, uh, I'm
1: very optimistic. I'm one of those people who believes engineers will save the world. You know, Malthus said everyone will die because you can only feed a hundred people on an acre of land. Well, now you can feed a thousand people on an acre of land, if not 10,000 people on an acre of land, you know? And with 3D printing and all the technology we have available now, there's no part you can't make. You know, I have a lot of antique steam cars and there's no junkyard. You can't find uh, a steam, uh, like a, a preheater or anything like that in a junkyard anymore but I can take one that I have, or a picture of one, scan it, and make one on a 3D printer. I mean, I bought a 1914 Premier, which is a car built in Indiana. Big car, big six-cylinder engine. And the guy bought it in the 70s for 30 grand, and it had no water pump. And he thought, well, I can get a water pump. He never found a water pump, so Mm. just sat. And then 30 years later, well, in the 90s anyway, I bought it for him for the same price of 30,000 dollars. I brought it home, I found a picture of a water pump, I scanned it. We put the dimensions into a 3D printer, and we made and then the, it runs fine. It was fine. Even in fact, with 3D printing, I can build up areas and put more metal in the places where it tends to wear more or rust more, hmm. or get porosity problems. So 3D printing really will save a lot of cars that were no longer. Uh, viable because you couldn't get any parts for them. So I'm really optimistic about it. I think it's good. And plus it changes, you know, it's like, it's like music. You had Frank Sinatra and then you had rock and roll and Sinatra hated rock and roll. And then you had rap and rock and roll people hated rap and then rap became the standard. I mean, it's all music. It just changes. Mm. I mean, you know, I had an intern at the Tonight Show once and he said to me, oh, no, no, I like classic cars. He goes, yeah. I said, do you have any classic cars? He says, oh, yeah. I said, what do you got? He says, 91 Miata. And I went, oh, it, just kind of, it just kind of made me laugh. And I realized he was born in 90. So to him, that's, that's a classic car. Yeah. And I realized, well, of course. It's like, to me, you know, I, I remember once, when I was a kid, we used to buy 59 Cadillacs with a couple of hundred bucks and go to demolition derbies with them. Hmm. And someone said to me, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, Pebble Beach to buy a 59 Cadillac. I said, How much is that? How much is he going? He said, 75. I go, 7,500? That's a lot of money. He went, No, 75,000. I go, 75,000? And then I went, re- Well, yeah, I guess so. Because well, to, to restore one of those, it costs you at least that. And he bought it. And it was a nice car, you know, a big, giant thing with all the chrome. And I realized it just, what was just junky, big old, American tank when I was a kid had become a classic, Mm -hmm. and it just keeps moving it forward. I mean The new thing now is what they call young-timer cars cars from the 90s uh, You know first-generation honda insight um, the uh, early Miatas without the airbags uh, Any of those Toyota Supras, you know those are all Mm. those are the 32 Fords of of the new generation Yeah, yeah, so I'm very optimistic. I'm I'm I think it's good, because the kids that are interested in cars now are really interested, and they really... It's like everything else. Everybody sort of specializes you. You like this, and the other people know nothing about it, as opposed to everybody have some cursory knowledge, you know?
0: Well, and my God, if you, no matter what you're into, you can find out everything about it now. Whereas, right? Yeah. you know, if you get a... You know, if you get a curved dash Olds, and you don't have any... Booklet, you don't, know, well, you don't know a guy Well, perfect example
1: of that. I've got a Lamborghini Mura, 67. A guy gave it to me because Dean Martin bought it new. His kid went over a berm, cracked a sump. The engine seized. My friend got it for a song. Cost more, couldn't get part. You know, you got to f- find somebody who speaks Italian, mm. then write a letter to some guy in Italy and hope that he answers you. I mean... Where would you get parts for a Lamborghini in the early 80s? There was no internet, there was no connections, especially if you're not in a major city. So finally it sat and sat, and his wife said, you know, get that thing out of the yard, just give it to Leno. He likes all these stupid old cars. So he gave it to me, and we we fixed it and got it running. And you know, it was a a joy because now it's a crazy valuable car, but then it was just an old car. We sanded it ourselves, we painted it ourselves, not the greatest paint shop, not bad, but it was just a cool car that I got for free that's now worth a million dollars. Is it an SV or is it a... No, mirror it's mirror. Just, just an S. Yeah. Just
0: orange, orange? Yellow? What is that car? I have
1: a yellow one and an orange one.
0: Yeah. I and again,
1: I... and that's something you don't want to do. You know, I accidentally bumped back to my orange mirror into my yellow mirror. Don't ever... Tell, <laughs> okay, that is like a rich guy, screw you problem. If you tell people you,
0: you backed your, your orange mirror into your <laughs> yellow
1: mirror, they will laugh, they will call you a jerk, you know. So that's one of those embarrassing things you never want to repeat. Just keep to yourself.
0: Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First world problem. Yeah, first um, world problem, exactly. I just have a couple more things. Go ahead. I'm really interested to know what is going on in your garages with your, you and your guys as far as, building out any kind of an archive. And I ask this because you guys are working on such unique vehicles Mm -hmm. and truly, you know, fully sorting them. I mean, I see you driving them.
1: Here's the interesting thing. It costs just as much to restore a valuable car as it does an unvaluable car. Yeah. So you might as well start with something that has some intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. You know, you could do a Sherry Nova, or you could restore an old Corvette. You'll probably do better with the old Corvette. They'll both cost you the same amount of time and effort to do, mm-hmm. except one is worth a lot more money, you know. Uh, so what are we working on at the garage
0: right now? Is that what you're asking? Well, I guess I'm probably I'm asking this terribly, but I'm just curious to know if you're, if your guys are kind of keeping a log of the techniques that they discover to, say, make the, a part on the Dobel work again, or something—the kind of information that nobody else would be able to dig up right now.
1: Uh, and, well, yeah, and we put, when
0: people own that down the road, we put is more there a file that goes with it, and
1: yeah, we keep files on everything. Not as, and, and we take pictures along the way. Uh, I'm not as good with that as some of the other guys are, but the guys do keep files on everything. Yeah, yeah, because we do try to document stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I just there's something about that opportunity to. Such unique cars and, you know, 50 years from now, all of that knowledge that well, the, you, you guys have built up around those cars. The steam cars
1: like the Doble, are most fascinating to me because it's lost technology. Hmm. I mean, the best steam car ever built was the Doble built in 1925, and nobody's built a better one since. And if they tried now, General Motors tried to build a steam car in the late 60s. I had it in my garage. They gave it to me for a couple of years, a Pontiac. And it was really just the Doble principle, hmm. uh, but it didn't really quite work as well. Um, I have Howard Hughes' Doble. He won 132.5 in this car in 1925. It's the first Murphy body disappearing top car. It's just a big, unaerodynamic tank. But steam is really, really powerful, hmm. and a Doble runs on superheated steam, which is even more powerful. And it's a fascinating vehicle because it's unlike an internal combustion engine. You know, you make your power and then you store it. Mm -hmm. You don't use it right away as you do an internal
0: combustion. And it's true that he set that speed in Texas on a... On a a deserted road in Texas, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's... uh, you'd go to Bonneville but I guess he was anxious
1: (laughs) Uh, well you just went anywhere that was yeah yeah, Yeah. yeah.
0: that's an amazing car I I, I've heard the story behind the car and how you it was in the Nethercut collection
1: yeah well I had a Doble I had one and I wanted to get that one because that was the premier one and I bought it at a time when guys that want steam can't afford it and guys that can afford it don't want it Hmm. there's this fear that steam somehow blows up and it's true it's one of the f- few cars you can get scalded to death and burned to death at the same time so I guess that's sort of a disadvantage <laughs> but that's more with a Stanley uh, in fact one day I was driving my Stanley and, and what what happens one time if you spring a leak sometimes the front end will catch fire and what you're supposed to do with the Stanley is you close the gas valve and increase the speed. So with the Stanley, you've made all your steam. So now you have this huge, lack of a better word, st- steam tank filled with, let's say, 1,200 pounds of steam. So you can go five miles on that. And what you're supposed to do, if your car catches fire, you turn off the gas, you, and then you increase the speed to blow out the flames. So one day I'm going down on the front 5 <laughs> and all the flames go oh geez. So I said, if I pull over, the car's made of wood. It's going to burn yeah. to the ground. So I turn off the gas. I increase the speed. So now I'm going about 75, trying to blow it out. And, of course, I pass a cop who literally does one of those,
0: like, that. <laughs> I mean, sees
1: me go by, calls the fire department. <laughs> you know, so I'm going, I'm trying to tell him, I'm trying to put the flame out. I, you know, he says, I think he understood what I was saying, because he could see the flame. I like, just increase the speed. Shouldn't It blew out. Once it blew out, then I pulled over, you know. Then a fire truck comes around and the guy's got an axe. Oh, I go, like, oh, don't hit this with This is 1,200 pounds of pressure. Don't hit it with an axe. Uh, okay, everybody calm down. So it was the oldest car ever stopped for speeding on the 405, 1906. <laughs> Stanley, Stanley Steamers. That, that was kind of
0: cool. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you something about hot rodding. And I'm just kind of curious what your take is on it as a cultural phenomenon and what, what you think of it and what is it mean i could be less well, you specific know if you i are. like
1: I, I like real hot rodding um something i find extremely disappointing and it's not is when i go to a hot rod show and i see a fiberglass 32 body with a tilt away wheel and an automatic transmission and a crate 350 chevy and i go mm. it's like a kick car in four pieces engine chassis body Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this type of thing I find much more interesting, you know, with the Arden heads or the three Strombergs or any of that kind of stuff, anything that makes it more mechanical. I mean, it's, I have a chassis in my garage that was built by a guy named Bill Barnes, and his son called me one day, and his dad built it to run at Pikes Peak for Al Unser in 51 or 52, Mm. This guy had no money, but he lived near an airplane junkyard, and he took a Cadillac three, a Cadillac. Was three? Was that three thirty one also? Uh, early Cadillac V eight overhead valve, of course. Uh, made the chassis himself. Um, drilled everything. Made his own radiator, inboard disc brakes from an aircraft, uh, LaSalle transmission. Uh, Just all junkyard parts. Just a fascinating piece of kit, the way this whole thing was put together. Real engineering, real design, with no money. Everything drilled and then rat-filed to clean it up a little bit. Holes throughout the thing like Swiss cheese. Hmm. It's the coolest-looking chassis. The body for it was going to be a fiberglass, Austin Healey-looking thing that somehow got lost, and... Uh, For some reason, the Unser did not drive it at Pikes Peak, whatever. But it's still sitting in my shop, and it's just a cool piece of hot rod engineering. But it's real engineering, you know? It's like when I see a movie that's made with no money, but really clever direction and really well written, you know? Like Mm. to me, if you draw the sun and put lines on it, okay, act like the sun is shining. That works for me if it's well written and well shot. I, I'll, I'll buy that as opposed to some special effects thing that just throw money at, you know. And when I go to so many of these shows, like when I go to a Roadster show and I see chrome wheel discs, and I go, what happens when the caliper grabs the, well, yeah. no, you can't step on the brake. Well, I'm, all right. I don't. I mean, to me, hot rodding is supposed to be, I have no money, but I would like a car. I mean, I have a, a car at my garage. I don't think most people would classify it as a hot rod, but I think it is. It was built by a 17-year-old kid in 1931. His name was Bob Shotwell. And he wanted a car. I mean, he and his dad went to the junkyard and they bought some sheet metal and some Model A fenders and an engine from an Indian four-cylinder motorcycle. And he built this three-wheel car with some real clever engineering in it. And he and his brother drove from Minnesota to Alaska, to San Diego, and back to Minnesota, all at the height of the depression. And he kept a diary of all the people, who gave him food along the way, and you know, the breakdowns and all this kind of stuff. But it's a real hot rod, it's a homemade automobile made by a couple of kids that had no money. And he had shopping cart wheels as outriggers, so if the rear tire blew, which was the center, it was two wheels in the front, single in the back, it wouldn't it wouldn't flip over it would, mm. it would drop down on you know and mm. he called me one day when he was in his 80s I never met him and he said I've got this car and I'm afraid some motorcycle guys are gonna come in my backyard where it was rotten away and steal the engine and throw the car away oh is it
0: an Indian 4 yeah Indian, Indian 4, four. Yeah. He
1: said if I give it to you will you uh, will you um, rest, will you fix it up I said sure Anyway, so I never did meet him. He was already taken to some old folks' home, uh, but I kept him apprised of it. And one day I'm in the Tonight Show. You know, I had done, uh, Michelle Williams. You know her, the actress. Mm-hmm. I think she won an Academy Award. And she said, "Oh, thanks for being so nice to my grandpa." I said, "Who's your grandpa?" She said, "Bob Shotwell." Okay. I went, "That's your... Oh, isn't that kind of cool?" So wow. Well, a yeah, small world, yeah. So that was kind of interesting. So the cars are still in my garage, and he, Bob went on to be went on to be a uh, Pan Am pilot. I mean, he was a successful guy, and he always kept the, quote, the little car, and he was a huge guy. He must have been six, eight or something, because you see pictures of him standing. He towers over this thing, but it's a little beetle-shaped car, and to me, that's a hot rod. It's built with no money, you know? Uh, It's like, I I work with the Audrain Museum in uh, Rhode Island. It's a car museum. They do a car show. And we instituted a, a, an idea that I kind of came up with, and I was, it's called 30 Under 30. It's for th- people 30 years old and younger who spent no more than $30,000 restoring storing their car. And we got a lawn full of Bugattis and Isara Faschini's and Alfa Romeos. And then about a dozen, uh, the, what was that, the C110 Chevy, the C10, C10 mm-hmm. Chevy, Truck, a couple of old BMWs, 2002, and and all and these kids and one the kid who won was almost in tears because his car was on the field next to these Bugattis and these Duesenbergs because he won best car for 30 under 30 and his hmm. parents were like stunned that their son's hobby now was getting this recognition you know and this kid was so thrilled to be on the same field. With all these exotic cars that he admired, for the car that he restored, and it wasn't about the money; it was about the time and the effort put in. Yeah. And you know, you couldn't, you can't spend more than. And I like to see more of that. I like to see people building cars on a budget. I mean, your dad gives you a ton of money, and you buy the crate motor, and you buy the transmission, and you put it in the chassis, and you put the body on it. Okay, I guess you built it yourself, but. There's no blood or sweat in it, you know.
0: Yeah, and or or personality. Yeah, yeah. I mean
1: to me that's the fun part—just the quirkiness, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, I like that's a nice definition of hot rodding. I like that.
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so. I mean, it's not all thirty. I mean, the thirty two four is a quintessential hot rod, but I mean, I got Hot Rod of the Year in two thousand six from Hot Rod Magazine with my. Uh, Oldsmobile Tornado.
0: Oh, what a great car. Yeah, it
1: was a 66 Tornado. We built our own chassis. We used the engine that Chevy won Le Mans with. We put twin turbos on it. It dynoed at 1,076 horse. We converted it to rear-wheel drive transaxle from a Corvette. And it's a hot rod, but not traditional. I mean, if, if you say traditional hot rod, you're ruining the name hot rod. Mm. Because a hot rod is whatever you decide it is. It's what you have around your house. You know, there was an improv team I used to work with, I don't say the name, at the improv, and they would get on stage and they would grab something from the wall or a picture that was hanging, and they did the most hilarious stuff. And then they went on, I think it was Ed Sullivan, I not how long ago this was, and they brought those pieces with them. And the bit didn't work, because the audience is waiting to see, what's that, oh, he grabs the picture, and when you thought it was just part of they were, you know, they were just riffing off the top of their head, ad libbing. Oh my God, it was really funny when yeah. they when they walk out and they put it down, then they pick it up and they use it. Mm. It got nothing because yeah. uh, there was no sense of surprise to it, you know. Yeah, a hot rod should be whatever it is you say it is. Whatever it is, with your ingenuity, it, it should be ingenuity, skill, and money last. You know, to me, I love when I go to a hot rod show, and I see a Model T4 banger that the guy's made his own overhead valve conversion just went to all this trouble. Mm. Because it was all machine work. It's all all machine work. You could have put a big Chevy 6 in there and had twice the horsepower. The fact that you've worked with something and, and kept refining it and trying to get it better and faster. I mean, to me, that's what makes it interesting. When all hot rods look the same, they're not hot rods anymore. They're just like replica cars, you know? I mean, I love Auburn Speedsters. Then they started making those fiberglass ones and you put the Ford 351 Cleveland in it and, and the wheels look all wrong and they just don't quite, it's like when you see those St. Bernard, you know, they you go to pet them, and they, you know, they seem skittish. That's what, that's, what, that's what it reminds me of, you know? I mean, to me, this is a nice, honest hot rod. You could say, this is what the guy had lying around and that's what I used, you know? piece of a kitchen sink, oh, you know what that is? That's from a kitchen sink. Oh, isn't that clever? You know, that's what I like. I like when people are, can adapt things. They you know, just buy parts and stick them on. And, and then, you know, I, I used to love, the, I used to have an ad in the back of comic books when I was a kid, or even some car magazines, for a uh, SSK Mercedes look-alike. <laughs> and Dad's got all the pieces laid out in the garage phone. and little Timmy's handing him the screwdriver, and Mom's giving him the wrench. And little Susie's got the other thing, you know, and they're building, the whole family is building a car. <laughs> <laughs> you know they're all going to kill each other by the end of the day,
0: you know. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, just one I hate to object, but it's almost, you're
1: describing like Max Belchowski, right? Yeah, I love Max, but I knew Max. You did? Oh, that's great. I remember old Yella. Huh. You know, Max Belchowski, that's sort of, that's when there that was the myth. You know, we've gotten this sort of thing in our heads that all this European stuff is so much better and everything. But Max Butowski took a 401 Buick nailhead, small tiny valves, stuck it in a 32 Ford, went road racing and beat the Maserati bird cages and the Ferraris and everybody with this thing. It was called Old Yella mm-hmm. and it was a hot rod. I yeah. mean...
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And it was great. I mean, the idea that with a tenth of the money, you beat the rich guy. And that's always the American story. What movie... Every movie is about, you know, the rich guy comes in with a trailer and then the kid shows up with his homemade hot rod, you know, and, the, and the, the dog with one eye and, you know, the whole bit. You know? I mean, it's hilarious. I mean, that's sort of the American story. That's what I love. <laughs>
0: All right, there you have it. Another great episode of the Rodcast brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation. It is great to be back. We sure hope you enjoyed this special sit down with our man, Jay Leno. We want to thank Jay and his assistant Helga for making this happen. We also want to send out a very special thank you to American Hot Rod Foundation friend and contributor, Robert Janay, who got the ball rolling on this one for us. We are forever grateful to, to him for this and for everything he does for the hobby. In fact, for anyone listening to this, do yourself a favor. Check out any and all of Robert's fantastic books. His birth of hot-rodding book is an absolute must-have, as is his Hot Rod Milestones book that he did in collaboration with, uh, actually, one of our board members, Ken Gross. Both books absolutely should be on every Hot Rodders shelf, and I would also recommend his Cruising Woodward book. That is particularly close to Robert's heart because he's a Detroit native, and he's someone who grew up cruising and street racing on that very stretch of road. So, yeah, get to your nearest bookstore, get online, check these out, own them, have them on your shelf. Thank you again, Robert Genet. And thank you to all of the American Hot Rod Foundation team that are working every day to save Hot Rod history. This would be Angela Helton, Crystal Hayes, our intrepid archivist, Jim Miller. Along with myself, these are the folks making sure that at least a slice of this history is not lost. Now, we also want to thank Alex Vendler, Cole Kuntz, and Ken Blackwell for all their hard work in making our interview with Jay happen and happen without a hitch or a technical blunder it is great to have friends and fellow car guys that also happen to be world-class production people so thanks guys uh, we really appreciate your great work on this and finally the american hot rod foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that was founded in 2002 by steve and carol mamishian with the sole purpose of researching and preserving the story of hot rodding It is because of their passion and support that our work here at the Foundation continues because, believe me, without them, none of this would be possible. If you'd like to find out how you can support the work we do or learn more about us, please go to our website, www.ahrf.com, or visit us on any of the three social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can find me on Instagram at Flathead Roadster. You can find all the previous episodes of the broadcast on our website, as well as on iTunes and SoundCloud. Finally, finally, uh, I've received some messages regarding our theme song and where and if this can be bought or downloaded. I thank all of you who have inquired about this because, you as you might know, the show's music is all performed by me. So I appreciate the positive feedback. Um, I have not figured out how to make the music available. I will figure it out, and I will let you all know as soon as we have that one nailed down. And so, with that, we thank you for tuning in to another great episode of The Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation.